Hey, it's day 45 of our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 15 and 16, as well as Matthew chapter 28. Exodus 15 is an interesting chapter. Um, it is a poetic celebration of the, the Israel's deliverance at the Sea of Reeds by the hand of the Lord. It is called the Song of Moses. And one of the things that makes it interesting is that uh, it is a poetic version of the narrative that just happened. And so it's kind of interesting because uh, when we're reading poetry, and we've seen this sometimes in the Psalms, uh, of course we all know that poetry is laden with uh, figures of speech and things like that. And, um, and sometimes the question is, we, we might ask, is how literal are we to take the accounts of poetry? How closely do they correspond with what, quote-unquote, actually happened? Okay, and here you can, you kind of have a test case for that, like what, what Exodus 15 says just happened in poetic, figurative, symbolic, if you will, uh, form using lots and lots of figures of speech, uh, compared to the narrative that happened in chapter 14. Another place that you can do this is in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges 5, the song of Deborah, uh, recounts the killing of the um, Canaanite commander Sisera at the hand of Yael. Um, but uh, that's going to be a few months before we're there. Uh, but that is, that's another place where you have a narrative version alongside a poetic version. And you can't really say that, um, oh, the, the poetic version is, uh, is based on some kind of drastically different account or something like that, and that's what accounts for the differences, because uh, we still want to read it super literally. No, you can't really do that because it's right alongside of that. No, no Hebrew editor or author placing them alongside one another um, would, would miss the fact that they literally just told the story in narrative form. So, as to the content of the Song of Moses, um, this is the first celebration in the Bible of God as Savior. Um, very important, obvious theme that we're all very familiar with, but if you think about it, all the way up until here, you haven't, you don't have, like, great acts of salvation going on now, but now, Yahweh has made his name known, who he is. He's with his people, and he saves them. And that's very, very significant. Um, it, it talks about the strength of the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become, and there you have it, my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, right? Going back to the patriarchs, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Um, and so <clears throat> this is exalting Israel's God uh, like that. You also have statements like, who is like you among the gods? Verse 11. Um, and uh, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And that's an interesting, um, an interesting little phrase, who is like you among the gods? There's various ways that we can kind of understand that. Um, one uh, might be that, uh, and this might be a little bit of a controversial idea here, but certainly in terms of what's already been said in the Bible, 
um, it may be the case that God's people do not quite yet understand monotheism, that, uh, that, that they are used to a world in which everybody believes in many gods, um, you know, every nation's got its own manifestation, every, you know, cities have their own gods and things like that, and God has not yet told them that there is no other God, right? You don't have statements like you do in in the book of Isaiah, for example. We talked about this a little bit with Abraham as well, um, as well as with Jacob. Um, so that's definitely a possibility. Another possibility is that God's here um, refers to uh, Yahweh's divine counsel, um, probably better to say his heavenly counsel, right? This, this, uh, this counsel of beings, uh, many of whom we might refer to as angels or messengers, um, spiritual beings to whom God delegates some measure of authority or something along those lines. Uh, the, the, the terms in Hebrew that are used to, um, to, to, that are normally translated God in English can be used to refer to spiritual beings. Here, the term is uh, not your normal Elohim, uh, but it's Ale. Uh, the plural being elim, and um, but nevertheless, th- this can certainly uh, refer to. Um, n- I-, I guess we could call them n- totally non-divine in the biblical sense, uh, heavenly beings. So these would be things like angels and things like that. Or of course, it could be um, already implying a repudiation of polytheism, like who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods because there really are no other gods, and all the gods of the nations are simply mute idols who do nothing. Uh, So all of those options, I think, are open to us. I don't think anyone is obviously um, more clear than the others, although different people have different opinions about this sort of thing. I suppose the only other thing I'd really say about this is that it's sometimes overlooked... um, how much Israel wrestled with polytheism, or perhaps didn't wrestle, and that's the problem, right? Um, the worship of other gods, the acknowledgement of other gods, and things like that. Like there is a distinction between Israelite religion as it is uh, commanded to be in the Bible, I suppose, or we could say laid out by theological statements in the Old Testament, and what was actually believed among the people. Um, it's it's sometimes surprising to people to find out how how um, much Israel actually like like actual like on the ground religion in ancient Israel um, acknowledged other gods which the Bible repudiates and this is not uh, I don't think this is a, a a difference between the archaeological record and the Bible um, I think the Bible is quite clear on how idolatrous um, God's people sometimes uh, were or often were. And uh, yeah, so uh, a lot can be said about verse 11, uh, but uh, it's very important. And again, I don't think any um, any one view is so clear, so clearly prevails over the others that, um, you know, you're crazy if you don't think it. Okay, what else here in the Song of Moses? Uh, of course, it recalls the... Um, the uh, way the people, uh, the, the Egyptian army was conquered. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Uh, now, again, interestingly, 
you you look at the narrative that preceded this and you're like no the earth didn't swallow them the sea did and of course the psalm the this this song itself uh, acknowledges that right pharaoh's chariots and host he's cast into the sea he, um, the floods covered them they went down into the depths like a stone um, your right hand o yahweh glorious in power your right hand o yahweh shatters the enemy um, so th- there's an acknowledgement of that but look at how the psalm kind of plays with the ideas and extends them and uses, again, just this very, um, I I guess we could just call it poetic uh, figures of speech and things like that uh, to to communicate its its messages. And that's why we just need to be a little careful when we interpret poetry in the Bible, that there is some play uh, in terms of, in terms of meaning, meaning. the uh, then we have the the trembling of the nations who hear about it, uh, the 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 inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan, uh, all melt in terror and dread because of the greatness of them. And so, this of course, if this uh, dates to exactly the time of the Exodus from Egypt, um, this would be looking forward to that. Of course, word would not have reached them yet. Uh, but of course, if um, if this song is perhaps sung and then elaborated upon and then included in Exodus, um, then then that would make sense too. Uh, but just uh, the the thing that I think is kind of interesting is when you get to the Book of Joshua and we hear uh, we 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 meet Rahab. Uh, she is uh, aware. She states that that we received word of many for many years now of what because it would have been about 40 years um, of what the Lord did and 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 we are we are afraid of the Lord not afraid enough to give up our idols not afraid to uh, become part of Israel not afraid to give up this city and and all and what we have in order to become part of uh, the people of Israel they probably wouldn't have even had had to give up the city but um but yeah, but as for Rahab, you know, she's like, yeah, I do want to become part of Israel. Uh, but of course, that's, um, again, a couple months uh, in coming, so we'll wait for that. Um, the other thing that I do want to mention uh, is something that we saw yesterday, this language of redemption here. Verse 13, uh, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you guided them by strength to your holy abode. Again, they're not at the holy abode yet. They're, I take it they mean Sinai. So again, there's uh, either this is looking forward to what Moses somehow knows is going to happen. Remember, it says this will be. A, he said, God said to him, "This will be a sign to you. You will worship me on this mountain." So it could be like this is as good as done. We're going to the holy abode now. Or of course, it could be something that was perhaps added to the song later on as as Israel. Uh, sang this song in celebration of the Lord. But the language of redeemed is there in verse 13. And then again, we see this in uh, at the end of verse 16. Um, uh, your people, O Lord, uh, pass by. It's talking about going by the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. The people whom you have purchased, redemption, purchased. And, and, I, and I mention this because one of the um, objections... Uh, to the standard way of understanding the significance of the death of Christ, right? Because there, there's definitely a movement, particularly among what's known as progressive Christianity, 
to minimize Christ's death as a sacrifice, to minimize Christ's death as a redemption from sin, and uh, all these ways in which the New Testament talk about it in saying, you know, like, this makes God petty or something like that, and, um, and, and preferring rather to, to exalt some other model of Christ's death above the idea of his death as a sacrifice for sin or forgiveness. And sometimes you hear this uh, kind of um, ridiculous non sequitur that, well, God could just forgive. Um, and um, uh, why does he require payment? Why does he require sacrifice and everything? And all of that, of course, will get unpacked here in our journey through scripture in due time. But here I want to mention that uh, one of the objections to the bi- biblical metaphors is, well, who does God need to pay? right? How much is a human life worth? Yada, 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 yada. And here we have the language of redemption, which is, make no mistake, a financial thing, right? You pay for your sons to be redeemed, the firstborn to be redeemed, for example. And here, just right out front, the language of purchase. And clearly, nowhere in the narrative is the Lord paying Egypt or anything for them. No, this is simply a metaphor that's used uh, to describe God's salvation, that they were um, they were enslaved by someone, they were possessed by someone else, and God has done something to rescue them from that. And that's all we have to take from that. Um, it isn't as if the purchased here is used in a sense of a literal transaction of some sort. Um, and so those who raise those kinds of objections, I feel, are just doing so out of a... Um, I'm not sure what they're doing it out of. I'm tempted to say a lack of biblical literacy, a lack of really thinking about how the language is used, but um, I digress. Uh, Back to to Exodus here. Uh, Finally, the psalm ends with this. Sorry, I keep calling it a psalm. Uh, It's a song, but it is kind of a psalm. It's just not in the psalms, right? Um, It ends with this hope of them going to a place for them to live forever. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain in the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Yahweh, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So there we have this future idea of the Lord planting them in the land. And now then the mountain, uh, this place which the Lord has made for his abode, um, notice how that is developed in the Old Testament. So the kind of prototype for that is bringing them to Sinai. And Sinai um, uh, indeed does serve as a prototype for later places of worship where God's presence dwells. Because then when they get, quote-unquote, planted in the land and the mountain is chosen for the Lord's abode, that will be Jerusalem. And there are correspondences between uh, Israel's sanctuaries of worship, whether the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in the land, there are correspondences between that and the Sinai experience. Um, the, for example, there are three zones of holiness, the kind of like the outer place where all the people dwell, and then a holy place where only a special class of people are allowed to come, namely the priests. At, at San, Sinai, it's Moses and Aaron and Joshua and the elders of Israel. And, uh, and then a holy place in which only one is allowed to come, which would correspond to the summit of the mountain or the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And you note that things uh, that uh, the, 
the things that are taking place in these zones. So in the outer zone, that's where the sacrifice of animals is taking place, both at Sinai and then later in the temple. And then, um, and then uh, the meal that takes place with God, which we will see in Exodus 24 between the elders when the covenant is made. Notice there is, there is the bread of presence within the temple. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, which is where the... Um, where the, the, the tablets of the law are inscribed with the finger of God, and those are placed, wait for it, in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So there's, there's, there's a sense in which um, Israel's tabernacle and later its temple serve as, uh, serve as a picture of what happened on Sinai. So this idea, you're leading us to this mountain which you've chosen— uh, yes, that is Sinai, and yes, it is Jerusalem. There's this trajectory where this idea gets developed in the Old Testament. And then finally, this idea, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. <clears throat> so that is the Song of Moses, um, followed by the Song of Miriam, with uh, that's Moses and Aaron's sister, um, leading women, dancing with tambourines, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. All right, then the people travel on, okay? Um, so they go into the wilderness of Shur. Remember I mentioned how the, the path between Israel and Egypt is sometimes called the way of Shur. So this idea, this, this, this region, this location, um, and uh, they have no water, and this is a big problem if you've got a lot of people moving through the wilderness, in the, let alone the wilderness in the ancient Near East. Um, and so they come to a place called Mara, which literally means bitter, and they find undrinkable water. And uh, Moses is shown then a log by the Lord and commanded to throw it into the water, and he throws it in and the water becomes sweet, that is uh, drinkable. And verse 26 says uh, that this is, uh, the, the Lord um, says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of, the, of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians on you, for I am Yahweh your healer. And that, it says, is made a statute and a rule, and, a, and it is a test for them, so this idea that that and this idea becomes very prominent in the wilderness wanderings for Israel that that they are in a time in which they are challenged. Are they going to be faithful to the Lord or not? They're challenged with respect to water. They're challenged with respect to food. They're challenged with respect to uh, military fighting. Um, and, and is the Lord going to protect us when our enemies come out against us? Are we going—their job is to be faithful and do what the Lord commands them to do and to trust God to take care of the rest, to trust God to deliver them, even though they are weak, even though this is essentially a band of escaped slaves. Um, if they trust the Lord and they do what he says, then they, quote-unquote, pass the test, right? They—and— they, 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 um, so that's that's the first introduction of this language of testing, which we'll, we will see throughout the wilderness wanderings, um, all throughout uh, the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the five first five books of the Bible. Then they come to Elim, where they, they encounter springs of water and 70 palm trees, and this too is the provision of the Lord. So not only is the Lord providing for them in this 
these blatantly miraculous ways, and I think that's very important to note, that God is, God is manifesting himself in a way. They see the pillar of fire. They, just, they see the cloud by day. They, um, they just encountered the plagues of Egypt and then the parting of the Sea of Reeds, and now um, they, they, God is continuing to miraculously provide sustenance for them in the form of food and water in the wilderness. And, uh, the, the, um, and, and he does so miraculously, and he also does so simply by leading them naturally to places where water is. Um, then, uh, speaking of the food that they are to, um, uh, that they are to be provided with, um, in chapter 16, um, we have, again, what is called a test, a test to see that whether they will walk in his law, because, and and frankly, a lot of times the, the people of Israel are kind of failing the test because they're grumbling. And here we see the grumbling again, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Um, they're, they're struggling with trusting the Lord and they take it out on Moses and on Aaron in the wilderness. And, um, the Lord is essentially like, all right, you want meat and you want bread? Here it comes. And he provides it miraculously. First, he provides, um, uh, bread from heaven, which comes down. And the way it's described here is that in the morning there's dew on the ground. And when the dew evaporates, what's left is this substance that it describes, uh, somewhat like bread, somewhat like coriander seed. Um, uh, we're not exactly sure, like, you know, uh, cilantro-flavored bread. <laughs> it's like, you know, put some salsa on there, a little pico de gallo. Uh, not not entirely clear what this stuff was like. It was flaky, um, and but it, it sustained them. And uh, this stuff is called, uh, in English, we call it manna. Uh, in the English uh, translations, usually call it manna. In Hebrew, it's just man, <laughs> which is a which is a weird word, which apparently is some kind of interrogative word. Um, it's explained by something like "What is it?" Um, but uh, maybe a question that they asked when it first fell on the ground. Um, but yeah, it becomes uh, it's it. There, there's places where uh, these these words in various different forms of Semitic languages uh, mean what. Sometimes it means who. Um, sometimes it even uh, can mean how many. For example, uh, in Ugaritic, sometimes it means that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's kind of a rare word in Hebrew. Um, but that's what the stuff is, and. Uh, and they are to collect an omer each day. Each person collects an omer. That's a that's not a lot. It's 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 about um, uh, the foot. Your footnote will probably say about two quarts, and and that's what they are to eat. And then they and then he gives them quail in the evening that comes, and they're they're able to eat the quail. So this is how God feeds them in the wilderness, and this is portrayed also as a test of theirs, as to see whether they will trust the Lord or not, particularly on the Sabbath. So what the situation is, is that they collect their omer of, 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 of manna every day, and but if they try to collect more than that, it will rot on the next day. Anything more than that they co- they collect um, 
is so is a lack of trust, right? Because you have to trust that this stuff is that God's going to make sure this stuff is there every day. And do you trust me enough that on the sixth day you'll gather extra, but then on the seventh you're not going to have any? And yet I will take care of you. And so the Sabbath, in a sense, is a trust, because you could work and you could try to uh, scrimp together on the seventh day, but. Um, the Lord rewards those who honor his Sabbath and those who don't, he doesn't. So if you don't go ahead and and trust that the extra that you collect on the 6th will not rot like it rots all the other days, but rather that um, that um, there will be, ex- the excess will, will still be good on the 7th. If you don't trust that, then you're not going to eat. And uh, if you try to figure out some other way, then you're not going to eat because you have to learn to trust the Lord enough to rest to take a Sabbath. Uh, this is this is actually the first of the Ten Commandments that the people of Israel learn, right? The, this will become one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, let's go ahead to Matthew chapter 28 now, and, uh, and uh, we are finishing up the book of Matthew here. So it is the day after the Sabbath, and we saw how um, uh, the, the Mary's uh, and and as well as the mother of the son of Zebedee saw um, the the crucifixion, and then the Marys, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, uh, aka the mother of Jesus, saw where he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, they go on the third day, and the uh, this is the day after the Sabbath. Clearly, this is Sunday. Um, the way in which this is the third day, by the way, if it's not clear. Um, as I've noted, uh, I, we noted this with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the days in uh, Jewish reckoning begin on the evening, okay? And so when it says that Jesus rose on the third day, think about it. So he dies on, he dies around three o'clock on Friday. So that's that's Friday. So he's dead on one day. And then the next day, Saturday evening to sat to, 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 I'm sorry, Friday, what we would call Friday evening to Saturday evening, that would be the second day. And then Saturday evening to Sunday evening is the third day. And that's when he rises. He rises on the third day. Um, And uh, there is another earthquake. There was an earthquake when he died, and now the earth is shaken again. And an angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls back the stone and sits on it. And it's unclear if this happens in the presence of the women or not. But um, at any rate, his appearance is like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Um, I I usually note often that when beings are depicted as having white clothing or white linen in the Bible, it usually means that they are a resident of heaven, that they dwell where God is. And... um, the fear of them, uh, of 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 him, rather the the angel who is who is noted here, and that's not to say there were not others, right? But uh, the fear of this particular angel makes the guards tremble, and they become like dead men. Matthew says, and uh, the women, uh, the angel says, however, um, turns to and tells them to not be afraid, because um, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, and he's not here. He has risen, and uh, then he invites them to come and see the place where he was laid, that it is empty, and tells them, go and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. Make no mistake here, these women are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have this thing that uh, 
that that we were told earlier, right, that that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. So this is a reminder, guys, you need to go to Galilee. And so they, they go with both fear and joy, which I think is very interesting, and he ran to tell his disciples. And Jesus meets them on the way and personally greets them. And um, they, they are astounded. They worship him. Uh, they, they lay hold of his feet. And Jesus says to them, again, do not be afraid. It's interesting that, that fear, holy cow, what's going on? Are we going to be okay? Um, this fear, is, and, it, and it's more than just respect, right? They're scared. This is a freaky thing that's happened. And, um, and Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And, um, and then you have this interesting account that... Um, uh, the guard who had been overcome by the appearance of the angel um, or guards, they go and um, <clears throat> they report in the city to the chief priests, because remember, they are the chief priests' um, guards, and they tell them uh, what happened. And, uh, and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the, the Jewish leadership there <clears throat> pay them off and then tell them that they need to to, if anybody asks them, and the thing that they need to spread around the city is this idea that the disciples came and overcame them and stole the the, the body while they were sleeping, and um, and if if that happens, if it comes to Pilate's ears that this has happened, we'll we'll go to bat for you, we'll defend you, don't worry about it. But that's what you need to say happened, which is very interesting, right? Here Jesus is just raised from the dead. An angel from heaven comes down and appears to them. And these guys are still trying to figure out how to kind of, you know, block this message of the gospel. They're still obstinate. This is just a testimony to the stubbornness and the hardness of the human heart. Note also how in verse 15, it says, they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this is an interesting component um, in terms of what's called the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Remember, we talked about the historicity of the Exodus a little bit yesterday. Here, we're talking about the historicity of this central saving act of God in the entire Bible, which is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And um, there is a very strong historical case that can be made for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and part of that is the fact of the empty tomb. Um, I'm not, I can't really go into the, the entire argument for Jesus's resurrection here. Clearly, don't have the time to do that, um, and this isn't really the place for it. But I will say that um, uh, the reason why this has been been a, such a compelling historical argument to many people is because this is not merely saying, this is not an argument that says everything that the Bible says is true, and uh, the Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore Jesus is raised from the dead, right? That's that's assuming the truthfulness of scriptures. You don't even need to do that at this point, although I think we have good reasons for, for believing the truthfulness of the scriptures. Here, it's it's just the fact of the empty tomb is something that has to be reckoned with in conjunction with other things, right? The, the, the fact of Jesus's death, uh, the fact of the disciples um, uh, spreading of the spreading of the message of the gospel and everything um, uh, in, 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 uh, and their and their 
unanimous testimony that Jesus had been risen from the dead, a bunch of other things like that. But the fact that the tomb was empty is a very important component in this argument. And here we have very interesting evidence for that, because why does Matthew include this little account here? He includes it because he's trying to counter a claim that's made by the uh, Jewish establishment of his day, and that is and, and, and that is that the disciples stole the body. But why does he feel the need to do that? Because they actually are saying that. But why do they actually say that? Because the tomb actually is empty. In other words, there would, have been, there would be no need for Matthew to rebut the Jewish explanation for the empty tomb if there was no empty tomb. So this is a very uh, interesting little thing that we find here at the end of the book of Matthew. Um, Okay, so then the 11 disciples go, um, that, that is the 12 minus Judas, of course, to Galilee, to the place where Jesus had directed them, and uh, he appears to them and they worship him. Uh, but it says some doubted, which is interesting, right, that, the, that this is not something like the disciples are like, yeah, of course this happened. No, the, the fact that this is extraordinary is something that is always acknowledged in the Bible. And uh, that it is not, it isn't as if these guys were just these totally gullible folks who just think that they, they see dead people all the time. No, um, they, these, these are guys who realize people do not rise from the dead, especially physically, they do not rise from the dead. Uh, but here, this is exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus charges them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We've noted this you know, missionary aspect to the Gospel of Matthew, this concern for people beyond the confines of Israel to all nations, and here you have that finally extended by Jesus in this explicit statement um, that it's not just, this hope is not just for Israel, but it's for all nations. And how do you make disciples? Well, you do two things. You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and you teach them all that I have commanded you. So baptism is the early Christian sign of initiation. That is the mark of conversion. So this is a way of saying you make converts, right? You spread the gospel and people turn to me, and this is symbolized in the act of baptism. Note here, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and um, it, it's inter- this, is a, this is an important... Um, verse for the, the 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 doctrine of the Trinity, right? That that these are being depicted as three persons um, who bear an who 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 are on equal standing um, and uh, and are and are grouped together as as uh, kind of the the God who is saving you. Um, and then uh, of course, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And this is the, the teaching aspect. The, these aren't separate, right? Discipleship is not conversion and then learning what Jesus has taught us is, uh, and learning to follow him is something else. No, these are, this is the one act of discipleship here. And, uh, and in case you ever get scared, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's what we derive our strength from, right? the fact that Jesus is with us. in, And this is, of course, the church's mission. Uh, you don't have to search long and hard to figure out what are we supposed to be doing as the church. No, we're supposed to be making disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. 
All right, that's it for the Gospel of Matthew. Look forward to uh, being with you tomorrow and uh, cracking open a new book of the New Testament. Um, And until then, uh, take care and bye-bye.